Hello, and thank you so much for listening to the Everyday Victory for Modern Christian Women of Color podcast. Be sure to find us on our website at www.mcwwisdom.com. Keep the church out of your sex life. That is the message that we are digging into today. Trigger warning. If you are sensitive about the subject of sexuality as a Christian woman, you might not want to listen to this. But I'm sure you're very curious to see what I'm getting ready to say. (laughs) So just be forewarned. You might also want to listen to the message I did a little while ago called God and Your Sex Life. You can find that on the blog at mcwism.com slash blog. If you're listening through Apple Podcasts, then you can just scroll through to find that podcast, God and Your Sex Life. So this one is called Keep the Church Out of Your Sex Life. Why should you do that? Number one, the church is filled with sexual perversion. There are so many cases, unfortunately, to name of all kinds of sexual immorality that has been made public among church leaders. Currently, Hillsong Church is under investigation and a lot of scrutiny because the pastor that famously baptized Justin Bieber was caught in an adulterous affair that was made public. The founder of Hillsong Church, who began it in Australia, was not only accused of but found guilty of pedophilia when he was found to be molesting a seven-year-old boy. And so the son moved the church to the United States, called it Hillsong, But that is the sordid history that this church is dealing with. Again, sexual perversion. The Catholic Church, my goodness, rampant sexual abuse of young boys that has been proven, documented, witnessed, and very recently some nuns came out and said that they were forced to lead children to church leaders knowing that these boys were about to be sexually abused. Why would you allow any of these people, these types of leaders, to speak to you and influence your views on sexuality? Churches have taken almost a cult-like position uh, with their congregants on sexuality, meaning they seek to influence and control the members' sex lives. Just watch any documentary on Netflix about cults. Some sort of sexual activity was always involved, where the leader was having sex with numerous women, and in some cases men, both of them, and with children. So we have to be very careful and very guarded When you start hearing sex talk in your church, especially geared and targeted towards church members, this whole thing about pinky promise, and I do not profess to know the ins and outs and the history of that, but from my general knowledge, all I can say is that that is not biblical. 
There is nothing in Jewish custom where a father make pledges, oaths with his daughter about her sexuality, gives her a ring, making her promise to be a virgin, whatever they do. That is not biblical. That was not part of Jewish custom. What it has done is confused so many young girls who are now grown women trying to be married, and they have difficulties having sex. They are afraid to have sex, and Christian marriages are suffering because of the intense indoctrination that some churches have enforced, particularly on young girls, when it comes to their sexuality. Notice, very rarely does this happen with young men. The purity movement is also a problem for some of the same reasons. But most importantly, purity suggests that a girl is unclean if she has had sexual activity. You have to understand, we're living in a time when baby girls are forced into sexual activity. Baby girls are abused. Six-month-old babies, how is that even possible? But men have been arrested for abusing sexually six-month-old babies. Are these girls impure because they have been forced to have sex already? Sex trafficking is a real thing. So by the time a girl hits 10, 11, 12 years old, unfortunately, they have been touched sexually. So the purity movement ostracizes a whole lot of girls, especially girls of color, black girls and brown girls, who have been forced into sexual activity. So to have something called a purity movement or anything with purity in it brings shame and condemnation on a lot of girls and young women, and that is unfair. So if you have been involved in that or currently involved in anything with the term purity in it, rethink that because you're hurting and isolating a whole lot of girls that Jesus wants to love and wants to save and wants to heal. And that should be our focus as members of a church and as followers of Christ, to heal, to be helpful, and to help one another be whole and live victorious lives in Christ. That should be the focus. In the Bible, there is an example of this sort of rampant sexual abuse. If you take a look at 1 Samuel, the second chapter, verse 22, Eli was a priest at that time. His sons were not only robbing the people of their offerings that they were trying to give to God, they were taking the best of the offerings that these people were trying to uh, give in the temple. They were also having sex with women who were serving at the church. Read that for yourself. Eli was very old, but he heard the people talking about his son's behavior. He tried to reason with his sons. He did not rebuke them. He did not stop them. They continued to do whatever they wanted to do. So they were raping and plundering in the temple. And their father, Eli, allowed them to do that. So they came to a very unfortunate and sad end because God had to step in and judge. God judged Eli for not checking them 
and he judged the sons by death. So currently in the church world, you have a whole lot of rape and plundering going on, unfortunately, enacted by church leaders on innocent members of their congregations. And a lot of churches are turning a blind eye and just allowing these leaders to continue to have children outside of wedlock, to have affairs, to pretend that they don't know that these church leaders are deep in adultery or deep into some sort of sexual perversion. Because the Catholic Church is not the only church who has supported, and I do say supported, the sexual abuse of children. This is why you cannot allow any church people to guide your sex life. I don't care how they try to spin it. The fate of your soul and the fate of your salvation is not determined by your sex life. Let me say that again. Your salvation and the fate of your soul is not determined by your sex life. Your faith in God, your acceptance of Jesus Christ, and you obeying the commands of Christ are the things that determine the quality of your life as a Christian woman. So why is the church so obsessed with people's sex lives? Whether you are a virgin, if you are a celibate, if you are a homosexual, the church has lost focus on what is important. Unfortunately, Christ is not even the center of a lot of churches. Church leaders who feel the need to start talking about sex from the pulpit and in their sermons are off track. They have strayed from the teachings of salvation and life in Christ. Now they argue, well, churches have to talk about sex because we don't want our young people learning about it from culture and from the secular world. So that's why we have to talk about sex. This then should be done in a health class that the church could sponsor by licensed professionals like licensed doctors, social workers, and therapists, not some half-baked preacher and his clueless wife trying to talk about sex under the guise of couples ministry. Why am I so strongly talking about this? One, I have been guided to give this message, but I have witnessed and heard so much stuff that it's time for me to speak out. There was one time when um, I went to a church. I had already talked to this pastor about another pastor in the area who said some really sexually graphic things on Facebook. I mean, he talked about oral sex, what he does to women. I kid you not. He wrote this in a very long Facebook post very graphic. And then he tried to say that the Song of Solomon supported anal sex and bestiality, and I almost threw up. I'm like, there is no such thing. You cannot even extrapolate that sort of interpretation from the book of the Song of Solomon. So I told this particular pastor about all of that, and some people were actually supporting him, saying, oh, he just keeps it real. Oh, this is, 
you know, the kind of thing that the church needs. Uh, I wish my husband had known some of these techniques and maybe we wouldn't be divorced. I kid you not. Those were some of the comments. So I was talking to this particular pastor about how disturbing that was and just how put out I was about that. I had also heard the nasty pastor actually preach a sermon where he used the words screw and hoe. And people stood up. Let me just tell you the context. He made the statement, if you don't have enough money, you don't know what real sin is. Screwing in your car in your mama's front yard is not real sin. If you can't afford a hotel, it was ridiculous. Then he said, well, my ex-ho's at. I know I'm not the only ex-ho in here. And people stood up. So this was the same pastor who wrote that sexually explicit Facebook post. So I told the other pastor about it. I was visiting this pastor's church, and for some reason, he started likening worshiping God to sexual relations with his wife. And I almost threw up because there is no way I'm supposed to be in a church trying to be focused on the word of God. Now I have to have an image of you and your wife and somehow you are associating that with worshiping God. I walked out because I had already told him that that sort of thing was a deal breaker for me because there is no way a pastor should be talking about sex that explicitly in any sort of forum, but he did it anyway. So this is what I mean. Perversion means that you are, perversion means that you have veered from the original purpose of a thing, not just being nasty. So when I say perversion, the church has turned away from the true purpose of what we're supposed to be doing, of how we are supposed to be assisting and helping each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, to talking about these sorts of issues that leave people hurt and confused. Most of these pastors who begin to talk explicitly about sex are very shortly afterward caught up in some sort of sex scandal. Why is that? When they begin to talk about sex from the pulpit, number one, it's like a teaser to see what women might be interested. And there are plenty of women who probably are interested. So now you are putting out feelers to see how far you can go, what your congregation will allow you to say, and what they will allow you to do. Your sexuality and your private parts are the most intimate parts of your body and your life. What you do in your bedroom is your business. That is between you, God, and whoever you are trying to do it with, okay? That is not for some man or woman who professes to be a religious leader, to have a say in. So they try to use and twist Bible scriptures to support their lascivious beliefs or to support the reasons why they're even talking about sex in the first place. On the internet, there was a video of someone in an African church. They were in Africa. Very clearly, this man who said he he was a pastor was feeling up women at the altar, pretending to pray for them. And he told them he had to do certain things to them and touch them in a certain way to get demons out. 
There are some misguided women who have had sex with church leaders thinking it was holy sex because they were told it was holy sex since it was with a religious leader. And one man even told women in his congregation that that's how he had to drive demons out was to have sex with them. And there are plenty of women who fell for it, who felt coerced to have sex with these men. That is perversion. But it happens so much to women and children in church. Again, you must keep the church out of your sex life. There is nothing biblical about a church leader having access to your bedroom, to your body, or to information about your sexual activity. That is personal, that is private, and you should never feel forced to share that information with anyone, especially in a church setting where the focus is supposed to be worship on God, not your private parts. Years ago, there was a female pastor who became very popular off of a sermon called No More Sheets. I mean, she skyrocketed to fame in the Christian world. Everybody bought CDs and cassette tapes and merchandise with no more sheets on it. Then years later, she confessed that she was struggling with lesbianism. So we can surmise that her passionate, fiery sermon about being celibate and refraining from sexual immorality was because she personally was burning with lust for other women and trying to keep herself in check. Think about that for a moment. In particular, single ladies, single women are targeted with and bombarded with all kinds of personal opinions about celibacy, about fornication, and about female sexuality. And a lot of single women have been taken advantage of by so many church leaders because out of a sincere and honest desire to live right before the Lord. But let me tell you something. The Bible is not the Kama Sutra. There is no sex advice in the Bible. There are warnings and general principles of godliness, warnings about fornication and sexual immorality, but you cannot just go to the Bible as a single woman, find an example of a single woman seeking to get married as we do in our day and time. And she's having all these experiences with sexuality. That is not in the Bible. That was not their culture. In fact, if women during that time were single, it was because, one, they were too young to get married yet. They were servants or slaves like Hagar. Hagar was forced to be a handmaid for Sarah and Abraham because Sarah forced her to. They were widows or they were undesirables like Leah. Remember, Jacob was tricked into marrying Leah, not Rachel, who he really wanted. Leah was suggested to be unattractive. Or they were women who were of age and just waiting to be betrothed, like Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents in the New Testament. 
So there was no dating. There was no mating, mingling of single people during this particular time. So you cannot take our modern day sense of single living and overlay it with the Bible of ancient times in a Jewish culture in Palestine where they were speaking Hebrew and Aramaic, Greek and Roman. You just cannot take that and apply it to our everyday lives effectively, not in the way that a lot of people try to do it. So again, the Bible is not the Kama Sutra. The Bible is not offering sex advice because it was not designed to do that. So what people do is they take certain scriptures and they come up with personal interpretations and personal opinions, and they impose that on members of the church, which engenders a lot of confusion and a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness. And a lot of women in particular have been hurt terribly in their souls by churches and their views on sexuality. In Bible times, they had very rigid social structures for women very rigid standards and customs for marriage that do not apply to us as American modern Christian women. So what we must do is to ask our creator about our sex lives. We have to take that to God in prayer. You have to meditate on it, your desires, what you should do, how sex should play out in your life, You take that to God first before you allow any man or woman to dictate what you should do about your sexual desires, your desires to get married, whether you should be celibate or not. That is between you and God. People need to stop using the Apostle Paul as an example for single women to follow. Have you noticed that a lot of churches do that? If you really look at what Paul was talking about in Corinthians, number one, you need to always look at the history and the background of what was happening. Corinth was a city dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sexual desire, number one. So when Paul was saying flee from fornication, they had temple prostitutes that new converts who were coming to Paul and coming to the church, had just come out of. So Paul hints at being unmarried, but he never said he was a virgin. We assume he was celibate because he was unmarried. But what he said repeatedly was that he was so sold out to the cause of Jesus Christ that nothing else really mattered to him. So we assume That's why he didn't have a family, because having a family means sex, kids, and a woman. And he didn't have time for that. That's fine. He had a ministry. He had a cause. He had the gospel to spread. So that was his personal life choice, not to marry. We don't know what he was doing with his sex life, because he didn't spell that out. People just assume he was living a celibate, sold-out life to Christ. Those were his personal life choices. That was his personal business. 
Why should his personal life choices become a religious standard for you? A lot of churches call it the spirit of celibacy, the gift of celibacy. They call it the gift of celibacy because Paul said, it's better for you to be like me, basically unmarried and serving the Lord. But if you can't be like me, then it's better for you to marry than to burn. Not everybody wants to live a life of celibacy. Not all of us were designed to do that. Not all of us are capable of doing that. Let's be real about it. And that is okay. God created you to be who he created you to be. He knows how you feel, knows what your desires are, knows what your tendencies are. So that's why you have to always go to God in prayer about every aspect of your life, including your sexuality. Unfortunately, churches have idolized Paul and his lifestyle as a religious standard of holiness. And they have all sorts of personal opinions about what flea fornication means. Again, you need to research the history behind Paul's admonitions, especially to the Corinthians at Corinth. Again, Corinth was a mecca for the goddess Aphrodite. They had a very large temple. They had over 1,000 temple prostitutes. Part of their air quote worship was to have pagan ritualistic sex with temple prostitutes who were believed to be divine servants of Aphrodite. So some of these people who had participated in these sexual ceremonies were people who were now converting to Christianity, and they are now part of the Corinthian church, the church at Corinth that Paul was establishing. So Paul was preaching one God and one sex partner. They were like, what? One God and one sex partner? So when he said flee fornication, he wasn't talking about two teenagers who wanted to have sex. They were dating and wanted to have sex. Those are not the people he were talking to. That's not what he, that's not what fornication was applying to in this particular context. It was that. Because in the culture, you couldn't be a Greek or Roman woman just out living free and single, just having sex with people that you were dating. That meant you were a prostitute. Prostitutes were the ones who were willy-nilly having sex with whoever would pay them, not decent, respectable women. So you were either married or you were a prostitute. That's where a lot of the current puritanical ideas that still guide the church came from. So again, you need to know the history behind these sorts of things. So Paul was offering marriage as a container for their sexual desires. It is better to marry than to burn. Not saying that if you have sex and you're not married that you're going to go to hell. He was saying burning in your lust. So since you have all of this sexual desire, why don't you get married and put all that on your partner? (laughs) And I'm paraphrasing there. I'm severely paraphrasing there. Paul was also preaching and establishing churches during the time of Nero, who was a known, ridiculous, hardcore sexual pervert. So he's talking to people who had all of this 
influence on their sexuality. Again, in Rome, men would have sex with other men because they thought having sex with women was beneath them. Go do your historical research. So the culture, that is the culture that Paul was preaching and teaching under. And this was the influence that a lot of these new converts were under. So when he talks about marriage and fornication and flee youthful lust, it was because so much sexual perversion was going on, and he was trying to curb that. So a lot of people take that verse, it is better to marry than to burn, out of context. And a lot of women have gotten married for the specific purpose of having sex. Because, well, if I want to have sex, then I have to be married. There's a comedian, Sherry Shepard. She's 53 years old, but she admitted that her problems with having sex, even as a 53-year-old woman, stem from her overly religious upbringing, dogmatic upbringing, where you were not supposed to have sex until you got married. And she said that mentality drove her to marry the wrong people. And on top of that, she never had a satisfying sex life with those men because she got married for the wrong reasons. She waited until she got married to have sex and then discovered that sex with them was not satisfying. So again, she allowed those dogmatic teachings of the church about a woman's sexuality to influence her decision-making, which resulted in two divorces. Think about that. I remember watching the ID channel, and you know, they have fatal dating and fatal marriage shows, but I remember clearly the story of this woman, African-American woman, who was perfectly nice. She was a church goer. She was single, but she had a daughter, so she was a single mother, and she met this man who was free-willing and, you know, fun and just really woke her up and wanted to wake her up sexually. So she felt like they needed to get married, and she did. She married that man who turned out to sexually abuse her daughter and kill the daughter. So partly she married that man because of her ideas of needing to be married to have sex, and it resulted in the murder of her child. And she just said in her post-interview, It was just me and my daughter, but I allowed this man into my life, and this is what happened. How is this of God? How is this helpful? How are the church's ridiculous ideas on sex and sexuality helpful in situations like these, if they cause situations like these? So again, there is a lot of misinterpretation of Scripture and a lot of unfortunate twisting that puts people, especially women, in terrible situations over sex. Man-made puritanical doctrines about sex. And in that regard, the Puritans were fighting for religious freedom. Number one, they were revolting against pagan practices like Christmas that involved sex They wanted the right not to have to participate in those pagan rituals and not to have sex with all kinds of different people, ceremonial sex. So as a result, they developed these really rigid, strict rules about 
a woman's dress code so that she would not stir sexual desire in men and having to be married and having to just have one sex partner, go back and look at the history for yourself. So Puritanism was an effect of a lot of paganism that was happening in the church. So again, unfortunately, the burden of people's sexual hangups in the church are placed on women to the point that women have misguided ideas about their bodies, about their sexuality, that have put them in some difficult and uncomfortable experiences. Because what happens is a lot of women revolt against all of that, and they just become freaky leaks, right? They become promiscuous. But promiscuity can lead to a whole lot of physical and emotional problems. So on the one hand, the church tries to scares you out of having sex to protect you, but in the end, it just winds up damaging people mentally and emotionally, and in some cases, physically. So the Bible does give general life advice like do not commit adultery, that's a commandment, flee fornication, flee youthful lust, because a lot of that can get you in trouble. Adultery can get you shot. Fornication can lead to social diseases. Lust means you are not in control. Lust means you have no self-control over your sexual desires, and that definitely puts you in a whole world of trouble. So that advice is to keep you and protect you, to keep you from making horrible decisions that are going to affect the rest of your life. So there are very real spiritual reasons to not engage or perhaps to be celibate, but you have to come to an understanding of that for yourself and you have to be very prayerful and you have to take that to God in prayer. You have to seek your creator about that, the one who made you. You belong to God, so you must consult God about every aspect of your life. I've said it before, I'll say it again, including your sex life. Do not consult fallible men or women who are prone to mistakes and misinterpretations about your sex life. So if you want to marry and have a great sex life or have kids or whatever it is, then you take that to God in prayer. That's something you need to put on your prayer list. So how do you know the Holy Spirit is guiding your sex life? After you pray, how do you know? For me personally, when I prayed about my sex life, (laughs) I'm going to be very honest, it seems like I could not get a man to look at me. And I literally was like, Lord, what is happening? Am I unattractive? What is happening? Or when men do look at you, They treat you like a sister and tell you things like, oh, I respect you too much for this. Usually you start feeling a little guilty about having sex and you say within yourself, I need to take a break. I don't need to be doing this right now. I, you know, this is not a good relationship for me. I don't need to keep having sex with this guy. This isn't right. It doesn't feel right. And so you begin your journey to celibacy. So all of those are examples of how you know the Holy Spirit is working on you, your attitudes about sex, 
your practices, your activity, you begin to change your behavior in this area. But notice I said you began to change after prayer and consulting God about your sexual life, not after you talk to a deacon or a prophetess or some pastor at a church. Lastly, we have to remember that the chief cornerstone of our faith is Jesus Christ. How did he treat women who were caught in sexual sin? With compassion, he protected the woman caught in adultery from punishment. He protected her from judgment. He told her not to sin anymore. Do not continue to engage in this lifestyle that left you, that got you dragged out of a house from under a man, buck naked in the middle of the town square, about to get stoned. Don't do that anymore. That's what he meant when he said, do not sin anymore. Don't do that. Don't keep doing that. That's going to put you in this position. Mary Magdalene, the woman with five husbands. Again, the woman caught in adultery. Read the New Testament. Research and find those passages of Scripture to see how much compassion Jesus bestowed upon women who were caught in sexual sin or who more than likely were doing something sexually as unmarried women. Do not allow your sexual decisions to bring harm to you or to anybody else. And remember, it is a privilege for you to choose what to do with your body and what to do with yourself sexually because so many women around the world do not have that ability they're forced into sex trafficking. They are forced to get married at 12 years old. Little girls are forced to have babies at 10 years old. So remember, it is a privilege to have agency and independence when it comes to your sex life. So this was a very strong message. You can go to the blog post to study the scriptures, to find the scriptures and study them for yourself. So hopefully this has been helpful to you. Hopefully this has inspired you to reconsider yourself as a sexual being, your practices, and your desires. And hopefully if you didn't know you could pray about these things to God and get an answer, you definitely can. So don't forget to head to the website, www.mcwism.com. We've got a prayer book. We have a prayer journal. We have other merchandise and other podcasts to help you achieve everyday victory in your Christian life. Again, that's www.mcwism.com. Again, thank you so much for listening and God bless.